Bokir Tov. Good morning. I'll make the same announcements they make on the airplane. This is Shure number 88. Check your boarding pass. 188. Check your boarding pass. What happened to the three-day festival? You don't want to end up at the wrong destination. Some people did ask me at the beginning of the Shure, before the beginning of the Shure, if I was referring to... Um, the problem that everybody's going to have this year and those people who stay in Chutzlarts for Sukkot or uh, who travel will have. No, this is not a three-day Yom Tov, which is a contradiction in terms in any case. Um, we're going to address the issue of the three-day festival that was the premise of Yitziat Mitzrayim. It was the stated premise of Yitziat Mitzrayim. And I want to start by asking a very different question, which is going to actually bring it all around together, which is the title on the page. If you take a look at the handout, the title is Shirata Yam Lamali, or so we sang at the sea, and in parentheses, a question that sounds preposterous, which is why isn't Shirata Yam in Tehillim? Sounds like a ridiculous question, but I'll make it a lot less ridiculous in a moment. What is the Torah? I'm not talking about Tanakh. What is the Torah? What sort of literature are we going to find in the Torah? Chiefly? Narrative. Lots of story. Chukim. Okay. And Brit. Essentially. Right? Brit, which both involves Brit with individuals, and Brit, which of course makes up the, the significant part of the end of Sefer Dvarim, Part of the end of Sefer Vayikra, Brit between us and Hakadosh Baruch Hu. Are there songs in the Torah? Sure, there are. Like what? Leave Shiratayam alone for a minute. That's our focus. What? Shiratayam. Perfect. So please turn to Bami Bar Chafalif. Thank you, Michael. Please turn to Perak Chafalif of of Bami Bar. We'll see this as an example. Okay. So B'nai Yisrael come to a Be'er, they're given water, and they sing a song. What's the song? What do they sing? Ali Be'er Enula. What, they're singing to the well? A little bit strange. And then a description of the Be'er. Be'er chafaru asarim, karuan divihaam, chokek mishrotam, humibar matanam, matanam achliel, etc. Where's the song? Where's the praise? So there is a very iconoclastic, it's the nicest way I can say it, approach that's suggested by Rabbi Yehuda HaChassid in the somewhat controversial Perusher Rabbi Yehuda HaChassid Allah Torah. It's an interesting story on its own in which he makes an audacious claim. And I don't know any better word for it than that. And his claim is that David HaMelech essentially took the Shira that was in the Torah and clipped it out and put it into Tehillim. And what is it? So please take a look in Tehillim Kuflam Vav. Now we're going to retreat a little from Rabbi Yehuda Hasid's um, extreme position, but not as far as might make you comfortable. This is a passage known as Halel Hagadol. And if you look carefully at Halel Hagadol, it praises God as Creator and as the one who took us out of Mitzrayim, led us through the Midbar, and takes us all the way to Sichon and to Og. Does not bring us into Eretz Yisrael. What is the penultimate line, which is really the driving line of the Thanksgiving? Because the last line is a coda. What's the penultimate line? Noten lechem lechom and Chazal themselves say this is a parak of Tehillim that was composed by B'nai Yisrael in the Midbar. And taking a look at the history of where it gets up to and where it stops seems to argue for its composition around the time that we were in our vote Moav, waiting to, to enter the land, but subsequent to all the years of travel. Rebidah Chassid takes it one step further. And that's because he's bothered by the fact that what's written in the Torah doesn't seem to be a shira at all. And it's as if to say, Az Yisrael ayen sham. And it's not as crazy as it sounds, because after all, we have in several places in the Torah references to other books. In Parshat Chukat itself, we have, uh, uh, we have a reference to Sefer Mochumot Hashem. 
Throughout Tanakh, we have references, Sefer Divrei Amim, Machei Yehuda, Sefer Divrei Amim, Machei Madai Paras, of course, famously, and, of course, the very famous Sefer Hayashar, which uh, seems to be, like Ibn Ezra says, a separate book by itself. So is there really song in the Torah? So what songs in the Torah are you going to suggest are actually there? Because we have songs, just one last second, we have songs that seem to be composed at the time of the Midbar, which are not in the Torah, and that we have in Tehillim. It's not the only one. There is much to argue for Parakuf Yodalad, Pitzek Yisrael Mitzrayim being a composition of that time. And as a matter of fact, Chazal associate even the beginning of Hallel, which they refer to as Hallel Mitzrayim, as being composed then, because what's the very first line of Parakuf Yod Gimel? Hallelujah, Hallelu Avdei Adonai, Hallelu Hashem Adonai. And what's the Limud? Avdei Hashem, Velo Avdei Paro. And the idea is this is something being said to people who have just been freed. And indeed, Chazal say, Efshar Yisrael Shochtim Pitzchehem, Velo Mrim Hallel. That Hallel was already something that was said earlier on, which means there are songs that are being composed early on in history which don't get into the Torah because they don't belong there. They belong into a book of Shirah. And the book of Shirah that we have is Tehillim. And they're maintained as ongoing traditions uh, that, that are finally included there. But what, what songs do we have in the Torah? Because there are songs in the Torah. Okay, good. That's exactly what we're going to get to. And Shirat Miriam is a seif of Shirat Hayam. That's what we have to get to and address. But besides that, so the truth, so the truth is, before you before you answer, truth is that we have what we might call mini songs. We have little one or two or three line pieces. Some of them don't sound very festive to us, like Adavit Silash Ma'an Koli Neshen Lema Chazenai And essentially, if you don't do what I tell you, I'm going to kill you. But I'd like to see what the tune would sound like. But it is written as shira, it is written as poetry. We have lots of very short pieces of that sort throughout Torah. However, those, perhaps because of their size and also because of their association with the story that's being told, have to be included. What else would you have in the Torah, though? What are the shira? Hmm? In Torah, in Torah. I'm not saying anything outside of the Torah. We have a whole book of shira, which is Tehillim. What? Hazinu, very good. So Hazinu is really one of the two big compositions of Shira that we have in the Torah, besides Shira Tayam, that we have to address. Why is Hazinu in the Torah? Well, that question really is a ridiculous question. Because Hazinu is the core of the Torah. What's the very last mitzvah we're given? And and what's the actual words of the Torah that say we have to write a say for Torah? Kitvu lachem et Hazinu is the core. Hazinu is also essential to the Brit, which makes up the end of Moshe's stand with Bnei Israel, And it's written as a shirah so that everyone will memorize it and they will know it. And therefore, when all of these terrible things befall you, you'll recite the shirah by heart because you know it and you will understand what it is and do tshuvah and hopefully fix everything. So we understand that. There's really only one other that I can think of. If you can suggest something else, Bavakashat afterwards. And that is what is perhaps the most curious passage in all of Torah, uh, and Chazal seemed to identify it as that, and that is the story of Bilam. The story of Bilam includes perhaps the most beautiful lyric about us, and it's such a strange inclusion in the Torah, not just the song, but the entire story. So let's backtrack a second and see why. Sorry, I'm from L.A., so I, I think camera. Okay, Hollywood. Um, from the time that our history starts, where does our history start? With two words. Lech lecha. From the time that our history starts, where's the camera? It's always on the central character. So who's the central character? Abraham. Then Yaakov. Pains me as a Yitzchak, but then Yaakov. And then there's a split screen between Yaakov and Yosef. And then the camera's on whom? A little baby in a basket. A young man who kills an Egyptian. A Midianite son-in-law. Follows Moshe everywhere. All the way to the top of the mountain that he never comes down from. There's one exception to that rule. And that is the story of Bilam. 
In the story of Bilam, not only is Moshe in the background, Moshe is nowhere on set. B'nai Israel are nowhere on set. They're in the background. If we're filming it, sorry, then we just get a bunch of extras, put them at the bottom of a mountain, probably use some sort of, uh, some pyrotechnics or something like that to make it look like that. Talk to Pixar. And, uh, and save, save ourselves a lot of money in, in actors. Because B'nai Israel are not in the foreground of the story of Bilam. The story of Bilam is a story really about two people and a bunch of extras. Sorry, Midian, Zikne Midian a little bit, sorry, Moab, a donkey, a malach, fine. And it is what leads Chazal to make a very odd statement. In Masach Bab Matra, when Chazal relate the authors of the different books of Tanakh, a very famous Brita, they start with Moshe. And what's the line? Moshe katab sifro, uparshat bilam. And then for Eov, and that leads to the whole long discussion about Eov. Why does it say Moshe katab sifro, which we mean, what does sifro mean? Torah. V'sefer uparshat bilam. Isn't bilam in the Torah? So actually, Machloket Rishonim about this. One, some, one, some could suggest that there was a separate book called Parshat Bilam that Moshe wrote, and we don't have. But the more mainstream approach is to say Parshat Bilam refers to Parshat Bilam in the Torah. And it is because it is such an odd piece there, and it is so, because it's so different than everything else that it's mentioned separately, Moshe Katab Parshat Bilam. And in Bilam, indeed, we do have the beautiful, beautiful songs that culminate, not in sequence, but culminate in height with Matobu Alecha Yaakov Mishnotecha Yisrael. It's beautiful. So why is it in Torah? So this is an aside, but an important aside. And it's an important aside not only textually, but also for this season. We are always aware of machloket. We are always, hopefully on the periphery, of machloket. The machloket l'shem shamayim, could be machloket about great things. Right now, as we speak, a lot of us are seriously and heatedly discussing tefillot on Tisha B'Av and whether they should re- retain the same wording that they had a hundred years ago, or whether they should be modified. But there's much bigger machlokot, bigger on a national scheme, take place all the time. And it's very easy for us, from the inside, to look around and say, what a quarrelsome people we are. What a difficult people we are. And sometimes it takes a guy on a mountaintop looking down to say, what a beautiful people these people are. And it's a voice we need to listen to. And living in the Gola, I get to hear it more because I have interaction because of my work with non-Jews often. And they are absolutely blown away by what an amazing community we have, what an amazing nation we are. And it's good to hear that because we have to remind ourselves that for all of the little creaks and cracks, there's, there's just amazing, amazing beauty in Am Yisrael. And perhaps that's why Parshat Bilam is there. I don't know. Could be. But let's get to Shiratayam. Shiratayam is something that could easily have been elided and alluded to. First of all, it doesn't have to be there at all. Vayiru Moshe Avdo. Moshe, and then they move on three days. It doesn't have to be there at all. If you wish, and take a page from Rabbi Yehuda Hasid, then Az Yashir Moshe of Nei Yisrael Tashira, and Maximum Ashira Adonai Kigal Ga'a. Ayen Sham. Right? And we'll know that the song is elsewhere. Why is the song included in the Torah? And it really stands out as the only song that we can't seem to defend based on the, on the premises that we've laid out. So let's leave that alone for a bit, and get to the title of the class, which is, what happened to the three-day festival? So which three-day festival am I referring to? Again, it's not Thursday, Friday, Shabbos. If you take a look on the source sheets, 
you find that in the interactions between Moshe and Paro, from the very beginning, and this is something that people who are not as familiar with Tanakh, as I'm sure everybody in this room is, often make the mistake of thinking that Moshe came to Paro, because they don't really read the text. They also don't know that there's a word after Shalach Atami, because they only read the signs. But they often think that Moshe comes to Paro and says, we don't want to be slaves, we want to leave, we want to make Aliyah, and it never happens. It's never a request. What is consistently the request? So take a look at source three on the page. We'll go back to one and two in a moment. Moshe comes to Paro and quotes Hashem saying, Let my people out so that they can celebrate to me in the Midbar. And then Paro refuses and Moshe kind of ups it. He says, Which makes it sound as if our task, our religious duty is to go out three days into the desert, which, does that mean three days or six days? Does that mean three days and three days back? But consistently the request is three days, so it seems like it's to go out and then be there for a three-day festival and come back, and the out isn't very far, and we'll bring korbanot to Hashem our God. And again, Moshe raises the ante by, by, by mentioning the threat that will happen of Dever and Cherub if they don't come out and worship God. What ends up happening? Think back to Pesach, maybe, I don't know. Think back to where we are today. What ends up happening, actually, when we leave? We don't come back. We don't come back. And we don't go somewhere and on the third day, or for three days, have a festival. So what is it? How would you answer that? And by the way, that's not the only place. Let's take a look at the other sources. Further on, after Makat Arbe, in uh, passage 5, <clears throat> Paro relents partially and allows the men to go out. Moshe turns and says, Everyone, but why everyone? Because it's a Chag Lashem. And the notion here is that Paro, and whether he's posing or being honest, is saying, well, if it's a festival to your God, you have to take the priests, the elders. And Moshe's statement is, no, we take, we have a festival that involves everybody. And we have to take our animals. And the mention of the animals makes it sound concretely as if Moshe knows exactly what they're going to do. They're going somewhere in the desert and they're going to offer up korbanot. And everybody has to be there to be part of this. It sounds as if Moshe has the vision of this festival clear in his head. Things start to weaken a little bit. If you take a look at Pasuk Chavav in passage 6, and this is after Makat Choshech. Paro says, you can all go. This is the next rollback from his position. You can all go, but not the animals. It's a little bit of a strange move. And to some of us with uh, who remember Triple S J. It might sound a little bit like the way that the Soviet Union used to uh, allow people to leave the country but keep their family members back as uh, hostages. doesn't seem to work here with the animals. But why Paro wants the animals to stay is a little unclear, but it might have been the same idea, is that if you leave without your animals, you're going to have to come back and get them. So it's sort of like uh, holding them to ensure you're as a guarantee. Moshe's response is kind of strange. The first part makes sense. We have to take the animals. We're not going to leave one behind because we're going to use them to serve God. Up until that point, it is clear that the Chag is a Chag of Korbanot. Etc. Except for this last piece. Which means what? We really don't know. Which means, what's Moshe now telling Paro? He was actually told by Hashem. Meaning, all those days, weeks, months, however you want to parse out the Makot, before Makanabon, before the, at the very beginning of the negotiations, when Moshe said, three days, festival, Nizbecha, what's Moshe now admitting about that? 
I didn't really know what the festival is going to be. I know that Hashem wants us to come out and have a festival. Assume Korbanot. But bottom line is, until we get there. Which means, everybody's got to be there. We've got to have the animals. By the way, we need fancy clothes and gold and silver, which are all part of the festival. One more time. Could be, and it could also be which animals, which kind of animals, could be. But the Vanachalonida gives us a little bit of an opening. I agree with you, Deborah, that it sounds like the whole thing is pushing towards animals and korbanot. But then we have the essential problem that the shear is based on, which is it never happens. Now, how, do, how would we answer that, the fact that it never happens? What? Faro didn't keep his part of the deal when? Never. Well, no, that's not true. He let us go. He did let us go. Right? And he let us go, and the notion was, go out and worship. That's what he said. Which means that he, he took him a while, but negotiations work, and he says, okay, go out and worship. At what point does he not live up to his deal? Besides earlier on, when he keeps backing up, off. And chases them. Good. That's what we got to get to. But the Vanachaloneda is like a petach. Here it says, we really do not know what the Avodah, the nature of the Avodah is going to be, and therefore taking everybody and everything and all of this stuff seems to be sort of a covering ourselves. Whatever it's going to be, we're there. <coughs> there are two common answers to resolving this problem. One answer suggested, actually heard here a couple of days ago in a beautiful shiur, um, was that Moshe, either deliberately or inadvertently, added to the command of Hashem to go to Paro and added this entire notion of, of the festival on his own. I found that very difficult. It was within the context of, a, again, a beautiful shiur about watching Moshe develop as a Navi. And indeed, Chazal, Rishonim, the Rav famously, talk about Moshe in his younger stage, it's kind of hard to talk about 80 as younger years, but younger stage of leadership as opposed to his older stage of leadership, and learning the ropes, and having a lot more leeway in the earlier stages. So perhaps we can accuse, we can excuse, sorry, Moshe, and not accuse, but excuse Moshe for his anger and disappointment with God after his first mission of Paro. Perhaps we can let that go. Chazal, by the way, don't let that go, because they say famously in the Midrash, you sinned with the word Az, and therefore you're going to praise with the word Az. Az Yashir. But nonetheless, Moshe is not castigated for that. But that's very different than misrepresenting a shlichut. In the ultimate statement of who Moshe is, which is Bamidbar Yudbet, you can take a look on your own, when Miriam and Aharon challenge Moshe's unique station, what does HaKadosh Baruch Hu answer? Every Navi, I give him Nevoah through visions, through dreams. Lo chen avdi Moshe, b'chol beti ne'emanhu. He's trustworthy. And to make that, give that description of Moshe and then say that this entire three-day festival was something that Moshe made up and was not given by Hashem kind of chips away at the idea of B'chol Amanhu. And it wasn't just once. It was through the entire negotiations. There is yet another approach, which is not uncommon, to say that the entire thing was a ruse. We're going to go out for three days. And either it's a ruse in order to get us out of the country and once we're there, we're just not coming back. Or it's a ruse, and this is perhaps a softer way of saying it, in which B'nai Yisrael, who themselves are not so ready to leave, will see how much Paro is not willing to give them even for three days. And so therefore, they will turn their hearts against Egypt and no longer feel committed and be ready to go. And is it a ruse that Moshe is aware of? The Bnei Israel are aware of, they all know they're leaving, but they're all fooling them. 
The difficulty of this really cuts to the core of the entire process of Yitziat Mitzrayim. Why doesn't... If Hashem's interest is to get B'nai Yisrael out of Mitzrayim, there's a very simple way to do it. Give Moshe a staff, whatever it is, stand there and wave it, and pull all the Mitzrayim to sleep. Let's go. I'm being a little silly, but not that silly. Because if the goal is to get them out of Mitzrayim, there's lots of ways for HaKadosh Baruch Hu to get us out of Mitzrayim without going through the entire process of the Makot and the negotiations and the warnings in front of the Nile in the morning. It is clear that there is much more at stake than just getting us out. There's a process that has to happen. And indeed, Moshe, when he comes to Paro, before Dam, before Arov, and before Arbe, before Barad, presents clear statements of purpose of the Makot. Laman tida ki ani Adonai. Laman tida ki ani Adonai bekeravaretz. Yein kamoni b'chol aretz. There's a theological message that Paro has to get, and through him the Mitzrim have to get. And until they actually get it, we can't leave. So to think that this entire negotiation about getting us out, which is driven by the importance of showing who HaKadosh Baruch Hu is, and to have it entirely wrapped up in a ruse. When we say, It boggles the imagination. We're going to get out of Egypt on a lie? Very strange. Very difficult. So I'd like to suggest that there is perhaps something else going on. As I said, it seemed like this festival that we were talking about was a festival that was supposed to involve korbanot. Actually, the animals, these b'cha, etc. There's even a stronger proof to that, which is after Makat Sfardea, when Paro relents for a moment, and, Moshe, and he says, I'll allow you to do your avodah here, in Mitzrayim. Which says, we can't. Hein nizbach atuavat Mitzrayim leinehem velo yizkalunu. Are we really going to offer up Tuavat Mitzrayim, which is a whole parsha by itself, but the idea is to sacrifice animals. Right here in Mitzrayim will kill us. Because we need to go far away. And here the Midbar is not because Hashem lives in the Midbar or some other notion, but rather because we just got to get somewhere away from the Mitzrayim so that we can safely practice our festival without being, without being hurt. So we have two questions that are bouncing at the same time that seem to be absolutely unrelated. One is about the place of Shirat Hayam in Torah. The other is about this whole three-day festival. So what you would really want me to do right now is to tie them together and give you an answer. And depending on your schedule, you might get to the front of the line for lunch. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> if you see in the first two psukim on the page, and these are two of many, many psukim, HaKadosh Baruch Hu's word is forever. HaKadosh Baruch Hu's word does not return empty. When HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives a command, it's going to happen. And if a piece of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's plan here is Nachash Lashayimim Bamidbar, and that's this big presentation to Paro, maybe we have to dig a little further and see where it might be. So, let's go to a third place. This is a very famous passage. Take a look at passage number four on the page. This is immediately after the failure, the end of what we read in Parshat Shmot, the failure of the first mission and Moshe's complaint to God. Hashem says, go back and tell them. What is it you're going to tell them? So we'll start from Pasuk Vav. I want to point out that these are four, but really five, but perhaps six very famous terms that are almost universally misunderstood. A note about teaching. Teaching texts that people know is way harder than teaching texts they don't know. You're all nodding your head, which means you already know that, which means I can't teach it to you. Okay. It's way harder to teach Ashrei than it is to teach... Everybody knows Ashrei. They know it so well, they have no idea how much they don't know it. You have to almost deconstruct before you can construct. 
And it's interesting, you come up to the average person on the street and you say, What does that mean? Well, they might say it means Borei Gashem. But I say, okay, what does it mean? Now, I have to put a parenthesis in the parenthesis. It kind of depends what street you're on. The average street in L.A., they're just going to hit you and say, I don't know what you're talking about. But you come up to somebody in Yerushalayim, or in Alon Shvut, or in Hashmonaim, and say, Oh, yeah, Baal Shonot Shogula. Yafemiyod. What's Vahotzeiti mean? What does that mean? I will take you out. Out of where? Out of Mitzrayim. Which means, after the Vahotzeiti thing, you're already gone. Okay, what's the next one? Mitzalti, which means? Save you from what? Whoops. Okay. So let's actually take a look at the words and see what it does say. So this is God's answer to their despair, and Moshe's despair. You like the colors, by the way? Yeah. I can't get it. Okay, good. What does that mean? I'm going to take you out from where? Under the what? The, the pain of Mitzrayim. Now, let's stop at that point and ask, what circumstance would you look at and say, that's been fulfilled? If they stay in Mitzrayim, then what happens? Okay. Maybe they're no longer slaves, but then look at the next line. Which means? I'm going to say, good. So now, what's I'm going to take you out from under the, the whips, the real oppression. And then means you'll no longer be slave. By the way, where will you be geographically? Let's talk about that word. What is Ligol? What does the word Geula mean? So where is Geula anchored most in Torah? Where do you find it most in Torah, the word Geula? You actually find it in Parshat Bahar, in the context of Geulat Karka. Right? When somebody has land, and they need to sell their land for one reason or another. Their relatives have to come and redeem them. Also with Geulah of an individual who had to sell himself into slavery. What? So Goel Hadam is the third piece, which is a little bit of an unusual uh, piece, but it, it fits into this also. What is Geulah? The Ramban in his introduction to Sefer Shmot, to his commentary on Sefer Shmot, says that Geulah is to restore you to your previously noble state. In other words, if somebody was in a, uh, somebody was in the elite, and then they lost their fortune and became poor, and then as a result of that they become an indentured servant. Gula would not mean that they're no longer a servant. Gula would mean that they're back among the wealthy. The Ramban explains that's why Shmot is called Sefer Gula, because it takes us from slavery to nobility. And what's the nobility? The the prior pristine state of Am Yisrael, or of the family, was the Shekhinah was among us. And therefore, the very end of Sefer Shemot is when the Anan comes down and the Shekhinah rests in the Mishkan. That's the restoration. So what does the Ga'al here mean? It's not enough for me to take you out from under the excessive burden and oppression. It's not enough for me to take you no longer slaves, but rather... Restore you to your... And what was their previous situation? In Egypt. They were the elite. They were the elite of Egypt. And then, again, is something that can happen right there in Egypt. And the final stage is, Nothing that says that those stages have to happen in the Midbar on the way, because they could all happen in Egypt. And then, which, by the way, could happen much later. Okay, we looked at the stages. The last thing we need to do to put this all together, one final interjection uh, is in Source 6. The Makot have happened. We've hit Arbet, and if you remember Arbet, the beginning of Parshat Bo, is just absolutely the end of the road. All of the Egyptian agricultural infrastructure has been destroyed. Everything has been destroyed. Paro's own servants and courtiers are begging him, please let them go already. Paro's about to relent. 
And then, without warning, following the model of Kinim and Shechin, the third Makkah in every set, now this Makkah of Choshech. Parenthetically, how long did the Makkot take? You're right, you don't know. I don't know, we don't know. Right. Chazal say the entire process took 12 months, Mishpat, Mitzrayim, Shem Esachodesh, Mishdan Sanhedrin, but we don't have any dating in the Torah. There's only one Makkah that has any time associated with it, which is the Dam Shivat Yamin. Except for here. And suddenly, in Mitten Derinen, as we say in Japanese, I didn't know I knew Japanese, Again, this is with no warning, and we already get the sense that power is about to capitulate, which he finally does. Soon. Suddenly we do get a time frame, and the time frame is three days. That sounds familiar, three days. Okay, but don't, let's not make too much. All right, yet. And there's absolute pitch darkness. In the meantime, So they have absolute thick darkness. And wherever we're living is light. Now, where are we living? Where are they living? Big problem. Look at Makapa Chorot. It sounds like we're living on the same street right next door. So what's Moshe Fotam? Very difficult thing within the Makot. Makat uh, Dever, there's the area of Israel doesn't have Dever, etc. And so, how do we understand that? We'll leave that. But in the meantime, there is a description of this Makat Choshech, which, if you think about it, and I'm sorry to use this term, seems to be absolutely gratuitous. It doesn't seem to accomplish anything. I'm familiar with the Midrash and the gold and the silver, but on the face of it, Makat Choshech doesn't seem to accomplish anything. By the way, it doesn't move Paro any further either. Every one of the Makot seems to nudge a little bit and then back, Chizukat Libo, but. It doesn't seem to work within that scope either. Yeah? No, but the, the purpose of the Makkot was the progression of, of um, land and down below and then in between and then up above. And the Choshech was a, almost a combination. Ending in the it's a beautiful scheme. <laughs> once we have it, and once we have all nine and the three sets of three, and then then we see land sort of underland, subterranean, on the land level, in the air. It's gorgeous once we have it. But I'm asking, what, what do we need it for? What does it accomplish within this whole scheme? And the mention of the three days, and specifically darkness dividing between their darkness and our light, question to ask. He has to convince and where do we find here that that... I mean, that's a good idea, but where does we find here the Jews get convinced that they, uh, that they truly... By the way... Are we sure that the Jews actually know what's going on? Unclear. We know what's going on. But Israel have Orba Moshe Fotam. I have no idea what it would look like to be sitting in a regular well-lit place with the sun out and look and see... I think Stephen King wrote a thing like this a while ago. And then see absolute darkness, you know, over there. I'm not sure what that would look like. And I'm not sure how this works to convince... But we do not find that Bnei Israel get moved by this. Because we don't hear about Bnei Israel getting moved by much, you know, in, in the scheme until Kriyat Yamsu. So it's a good possibility. I'm going to take you on a little walk. And this will, as I said, the things that we know best are the things hardest to teach because we have to sort of be ready to step back and look at them differently. The Chag that we have that celebrates this whole event is Chag Good. Chagamatzot uh, is Chag on the first day and seventh day. Good. What are we celebrating on the first day? Chagapesach, which was the, day, the afternoon before. Good. And Shemitzrayim. Good. Exactly. What are we celebrating on the seventh day? What? Kriyat Yamsuf. Well, where do we find Kriyat Yamsuf and the seventh day connected at all? Because I know there's a minhag in my Rebbe's shtibel that they pour water on the ground and jump over it on Tikkun Liel Shvi Shapesach. That. Plus, Kriyat Torah. Traditionally, and in the Midrash, we do associate Shvish Pesach with Kriyat Yamsu. And the reason seems to be sort of a shiduch of, I call it Lonely Hearts, is a little bit unfair, but you've got Yamsuf, which is not associated with any particular holiday or any particular date in the Torah. And on the other hand, you have this holiday that doesn't seem to be commemorating anything. Okay, that seems like a nice match. And it works for many purposes, 
But I'd like us to remove ourselves from that and recognize that nowhere in the Torah are we given a date for Kriyat Yamsuf. And let's take a look and walk through the Midbar together. Sun Source 7. Hope you got your hiking shoes and a canteen and a hat. Okay. So when Israel traveled from Ramses to Sukkot, when is that? Let's keep a calendar in front of us. When is that? The morning of the 15th. Right? The morning of the 15th. In other words, last night at midnight, what happened? Bechorot. Ah! Throughout my time. The next morning, because Moshe says, we're not leaving in the middle of the night. We're leaving Biyad Ramah. So, first thing in the morning, we get out there, we march from Ramses to Sukkot. Which, by the way, is a very powerful statement of moving from the Egyptian context of Ramses to a place that has a Semitic name, Sukkot. Why is it called Sukkot? We don't know. And there are some Rishonim who suggest that when Kiva Sukkot, Oshat Yetchem, Botzi Yetchem, is referring to this. That this is the first place I brought you to when I took you out. As they come to Sukkot, when do they get to Sukkot? On the 15th. Kushesh Mirat Elifar Gliak Barim Bavad Mitav, forget the number, Begam Eir of Rabalai Tam, Vitsonu Bakar Mikinek Kaved Meodim. So the whole Mishpacha. And this is now telling us what we had already done, that we had this, they, they, the batsek that they had, they now baked evidently in Sukkot, and, uh, and now we move. When? When? So you would think it's the next day, which would make it, they'd stay over on the 15th at night, the Hainu, the 16th, the evening of the 16th in Sukkot, and the next day they go to Eitam, except for one problem. And then, When's the first time that we hear about how they were led through the Midbar with the cloud and the fire? Only after Etam. Which makes me think that the first time that we're getting to any nighttime is when we get to Etam. Which means we go from Amses to Sukkot to Etam and we're at Etam at the end of the day and then we camp there and we stay there overnight. Okay, good. Turn the page. Okay. Now we're in Etam. We move forward from Etam. This is all happening on the 16th. And all of these moves that are made in order to perhaps get Paro to come after us or to confuse him are made on the 16th. The Amar Paro of Israel, which may be Divrei Hashem, meaning not just a description of what happened, but this is what will happen. Paro will say, So Israel make all the moves they're supposed to make. Paro indeed is going to get stubborn and run after them and bring his chariots, etc. We have to read this part carefully. This is now, I'm contending, on the 16th, in the later part of the day. Where are we camped? Right at the banks of the sea. So the whole chariots are there. Somebody once commented, how could you look up and see who's in back of you? Okay, so they had rear view mirrors. But, when Israel look up and they see me trying chasing them, so it belongs to Purim. So they cry out. And now, let them keep going. Now, what we had before, remember? Put your hand with the staff over the sea and split it. When is this happening? In the 16th. When in the 16th? We'll see. So the Malach that was leading them and this pillar comes down in back of the camp and separates between Mitzrayim and Bnei Israel. Let's keep going. Which leads to the very famous Midrash about the Malachim. 
And so there is a darkness that's covering Mitzrayim, and they cannot see what's going on our side. And on our side, we have Vayayareth Halayla. Vayayareth Halayla. This should remind us of something that just happened to Mitzrayim just before we left. Now, by the way, Moshe is putting his hand over the sea. Hashem makes the wind go. The sea splits. But Israel walked through. In the meantime, where are the Mitzrayim? Literally in the dark. They can't see this. And this is all night. Which night? 16th going into the 17th. Thank you. Uh, I know you want me to do that. It's walls on both sides. Now what happens when the cloud lifts? And Tzorim sees them, and what happens? We're on the other side, and they come chasing after us. First thing in the morning, Hashem now sends the fire and the cloud, he confuses them. The wheels come off. They get driven deep, in parallel with the story of Sisra, of course. out of here. Hashem's fighting for them, and of course they don't get out of there. And Hashem says to Moshe, "Put your hand over the sea." Sea comes back, drowns the Mitzrayim, and everybody except the Malachim gets to sing. When did this all happen? Okay. I want to go back to something that Moshe said towards the end of the negotiations. What is Avodat Hashem? What is La'avodat Hashem? So typically, in the ancient world, it would mean some form of korbanot. But it's not the only way La'avodat Hashem. We have a very famous, famous midrash. Ulo avdo v'chol levavchem, zutfila. There are many other ways, and we're not the only nation, even in those days, who held had other ways of worshiping gods with with non uh, besides animals. So we've all gone out, all of us together, and we're going to worship God. And what's the worship? Shiratayam. Why is Shiratayam in Torah? Because it is the worship of the third day. We left on the 15th, marched on the 16th. On the 17th we arrive and we sing. And that's the Avodah. But there's more to it. Let's take a look at Shiratayam. And I'll be honest with you, I was always confused by the elements in Shiratayam. It's a beautiful, beautiful song. And again, it's the sort of thing that familiarity makes it a little bit more difficult, because we're so familiar with it. And I hope the colors don't give it away too quickly. Everybody agrees that that section is the introduction. The general introduction and the specific introduction. Ashur al-Adonai is the general introduction. And that Sus for Ayam makes it more specific to this event, and we continue on with the specificity. What's the first thing that's specific to this event that we praise God for? Markavot Parova Chelo Yaravayam. What's that? What does that mean? Hashem threw Paro's chariots. And the top of his generals, of his colonels, of his things, were thrown in, were drowned in Yamsuf. Now let's think back to what our experience in Mitzrayim was. Because, in a very strong sense, that's something I think we all intuit, Kriyat Yamsuf and Shiratayam is closing a chapter on part of our history. It's not so much Kriyatayam, but Chazaratayam. The sea closing again, and drowning the Egyptians, and the Shira being sort of the coda of that entire event, closes the chapter on our history. And Moshe says it. You've seen Egypt, you'll never see them again. Either you will never, or you may never see them again in this way. Right? Monea Mitzvot considered three different Mitzvot of not going back to Mitzrayim, but it's closing a chapter. 
So it's closing a chapter. It has to be a chapter that reflects on the entire experience. What was the most grievous part of the experience? And and we have to go back a little bit and think, what is it like for a family that was the elite in Egypt? Now, none of these people remember that personally. But certainly within their family, people told stories. We were the ones who were landowners. We were the ones who were comfortable even during the years of famine. Read the end of Parshat Vayigash. What is it like when you take somebody who's been in a circumstance like that and bring them to the circumstances that we read about, albeit very, very scant information about the actual Shia Bud? But the first thing that we hear actually about the Shia, not the Gzeot, but about the Shia Bud, is about a Mitzri whipping an Ivri. It's not just work, it's oppression. And it's something that we build up in the Haggadah Pigado. The Dachak, the Lachats. The oppression is a piece of the superiority, the power of Egypt being held over us. And if you think about one particular thing that typifies the superiority of Egypt, it is the horses. The king is commanded not to go to Mecca to get horses. Sus and here, what is it? Markavot Paro. What's Markavot Paro? His chariots, which of course led by horses and has ex- expert uh, uh, military leaders on them, are all thrown into the sea. We're watching as the superiority of Egypt is thrown into the sea. That's step one. They all fell. That's an interjection of praise. And now what happens? All of that is part of this. The Adirim, the big powerful ones, fell like, like lead into the sea. We're now not talking about the superiority of Egypt. We're talking about the Egyptians. I'm not talking about the chariots going down and their leaders going down. We're talking about all of them going down. What was it we experienced in Egypt? We experienced terrible oppression. But besides that, we experienced the fact that we were owned by another people. We were enslaved to another people. Like a news for you, you cannot be enslaved to a people that doesn't exist anymore. If they no longer exist, we are no longer enslaved to them. And then, the famous interjection, this song is filled with these interruptions, these interludes. And then what happened? So now, we're praising God that we're not only out of the oppression, we're not only out of the servitude because our masters are all dead, but we are now being raised to a position of nobility. Amzu Ga'alta, you redeemed this nation. Nehalta you You're leading them to your holy place. We move on. Shamu Amiri Gazun. What's happening in that holy place? And this we hear about, of course, from Rachav in Yoshua Bet. They're all scared. Leading to many famous Midrashim during Kred Yamsuf. The whole world hears about it. Everybody's scared. Azni all of that is part of that same sense that, that the country that we are coming to and everybody on the way is scared. They're shaking in the boots. And now what? In other words, the nation that you have taken to be yours. And what's next? Mikdash Bring us to that holy place and you have prepared the Mikdash and it ends that's the end of the Shirah. Well, let's think about that. The first thing that we're praising God for in this Avodah, in this Shirah is that you have taken the superiority, the overlordness of Egypt and thrown it down. 
turn back to the Haftachot, and what is it? What's the second thing we're praising God for? You throw them all in the sea. They're no longer around, and therefore you are no longer owned. Your masters are dead. Not all the Egyptians are there, of course. But the entire army goes down. And then we move further and we say, Amzu Ga'alta. And the word is right there. And then what happens? We praise HaKadosh Baruch Hu for bringing us all the way to the land because What does Kanita mean? You have acquired, you have taken for yourself. Before we get to the last one, Think back to how Bnei Yisrael responded. How Bnei Yisrael responded when Moshe first told them these words. V'lo shamu Moshe ruach kasha. Not to spend too much off of Pshat, but mikotzer ruach. What was the vehicle Akadosh Baruch Hu used to split the sea? Ruach Azah. Not lack of Ruach, but a very strong Ruach. But Bnei were not able to hear these promises, but doesn't mean they didn't hear them. They just could not internalize them. They knew that HaKadosh Baruch Hu had promised this. And now they come to Yamsuf and they see what HaKadosh Baruch Hu has done in front of their eyes, and they turn around and they praise in exactly that order. You remove the superiority of Egypt from above our necks, you destroyed the Egyptians and we are no longer owned by them. You redeemed us and brought us to a position of nobility. Look at us. We're standing here with gold and silver and fancy clothes watching our enemies drowning. And you have made us your nation. What's the only thing left to do? So what's the last thing they say? What's the necessary bridge between the four and the one? That this event that you did here not only removed Egypt from our lives, but also enabled the next steps that you promised to us to bring us into the land. What we did over the course of the last 58 minutes, I'm saving two minutes for a public service announcement. Um, we did over the course of the past 58 minutes, we looked at the issue of Shira in the Torah. And I suggested, recommended that Shira really does not exist in the Torah except when it's necessary for something particular to the, to the text. And the reason for that being that Shira is found in other places. Chazal tell us many shirot that were composed in the Midbar and in other times in history, and they're in Tehillim. When you look into the particular Perkei Tehillim, you can find historic associations with particular times. The Tehillim is where the repository of shirot Israel, Tehillot Israel, is collected. We talked briefly about Hazinu and its role in the Brit and its role as the core of the Torah, of the Mitzvah Tivat Sefer Torah, the story of Bilam and that Shira and why that's there. And then we looked at the, and then I raised the question, why Shira Tayyam is in the Torah? We left that open. Second thing we looked at was this whole promise of a three-day festival, which of course could be interpreted in one of several ways. One is we want to go out for three days, have a festival and come back, which makes it a week. Could be we want to go somewhere and party for three days and come back. Party's not the right word, but it's almost lunch. Um, possibility three is that we want to go and on the third day have a festival. All unclear. What's the festival to be made up of? So it sounds like Korbanot. Up until the very last moment when Moshe says, which we could read narrowly as Deborah suggests, which means we don't know which animals, which is likely. What can mean more broadly is saying, I really don't know what kind of avodah it is. Which, if you if you will, puts us somewhere in between the two positions of saying, this is what HaKadosh Baruch Hu told Moshe to say, 
in which case, is it a ruse? Or Moshe said it on his own, in which case, what kind of Eben Neman is it? And said that what Kadosh Baruch Hu had said to Moshe is, Choguli Bamidbar. And Moshe on his own said, Nizbecha, and then finally said, Machuloneda. Could be. The last thing we looked at was Makar Choshech, and seeming, seemingly unnecessary, and if you will, unproductive. Doesn't move things along at all. It seems that Makar Choshech actually serves as a foreshadowing to the real event that's going to happen, which is going to be Yam Suf. The Choshech on one side and the Or on the other side. The Choshech is explicitly three days because it's associated with the three-day festival. And then we walked through the calendar of the events and saw that we briefly looked at the Ushonot HaGeulah and saw that they're not, if read carefully, they're not what we think they are. And we then walked through the calendar of events and in spite of the fact that traditionally we associate Shiva Sabe, uh, sorry, um, wrong mode, that we associate the Shvish Pesach with Kriyat Yamsuf, nonetheless, within the text itself, there's room to argue that Kriyat Yamsuf happened on the 16th at night and the 17th in the morning, and that it was at dawn that the Egyptians ran in, and Moshe closed the sea on them with a stick, and Hashem brought the wind, and that then we sang Shirat Hayam. And that Shirat Hayam, indeed, would be a song of praise that not only then is the Avodah, and Lo Yashud Hashem's words do not come back empty. Hashem said three days in a festival, this is the three day festival. But it's more than that, is that Shirat Hayam is Bnei Yisrael's expression of thanksgiving for fulfillment of four and in anticipation of the fifth promise that they were told in Mitzrayim that they couldn't listen to and are put into beautiful form, which of course then becomes a core of our Vodah. That's the Shior. Um, question. I'll take. One minute of questions, because I'm going to steal two. Can you pay Pesach three days? Pesach three days? Um, yes, if you can go back about 3,000 years, we can negotiate. Don't ask me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Seem to be lost. So your que- his question, just to make sure everybody hears it, is that the phrase makes it sound as if there was more than three days between when they left and when and when Parah heard about it. It depends on how we read Kivarach. If Kivarach is they fled, meaning they took advantage of their furlough and they not come back, they wall, then you'd be right. If on the other end Kivaracham is, fr- is is reflecting on the direction they're taking, saying they're not going in one particular place to need bar, but they seem to be moving out. And then it becomes everything else. And, and Paro's then comment about Sagar Lehemim Bar is a comment about the direction they're taking. So I, I agree with you. It could be read that way, certainly. Um, Shira. I'm still exactly the minute and a half that I have. Shira. Um, we um, all aware of the importance of giving thanks to HaKadosh Baruch Hu for all the things he gives us. We do it on a regular basis with our brachot, and we do it at particular festivals, and um, we also know how problematic it is on a historic level to not give thanks to Hakadosh Baruch Hu. Famous statement in Sanhedrin Saridalad that because Hakadosh Baruch Hu lasot mechizkiyah Mashiach, and why wasn't Chizkiyah made Mashiach? Because Shalom Shira. He didn't give thanksgiving to God when God saved us from Sanhedrin. And for a number of years, um, a lot of friends and I have shared the sense that our own thanksgiving to HaKadosh Baruch Hu for the amazing nace that we have of sovereignty and the beautiful, beautiful rebuilding of, of our land is something that perhaps is being shadowed in certain contexts. And as a result of that, uh, there have been different attempts by different people to add in expressions of hoda'ah. Some people, uh, dear friend of mine composed an alanisim for Yom Atzma'ut. I have a teacher who composed an alanisim. A lot of people for Yom Yerushalayim. Different expressions of thanksgiving to God for the miracles that we are benefiting from. One of the points that was a little bit difficult for many people over the past, really, 50 years has been the tefillah of Nachem that we say on Tisha B'Av. And 
over the years, more and more people have raised the issue of that the text of Nachem reflects an expression of a city which has doesn't have its children, is is controlled by other nations, etc. A reality which is, thank God, very very far from what our Kodesh Baruch has blessed us with in our day and age. And there are lots of different ways to respond to that. One way is to say it and add in the word, as the sign outside Beknesset says, to add in the word, Chemdov Levi suggested, Shahita, and it's the city that was mourning. But then it becomes like, well, what are we mourning for? If it used to be mourning, but not mourning anymore. So a few colleagues and I um, sat together and put together a Nusach as a proposal. And it really puts the entire focus not on the city, which Baruch Hashem is thriving and is beautiful, but rather on the core of the city, which is the, really the source of the, of the Avilut on Tisha B'Av, which is Harbait. It becomes a very pregnant issue today because of the politics. But nonetheless, if anybody's interested, I have copies of the Nusach here. You can come up, feel free to take them. And uh, in Yotz Hashem, it will be a moot issue by Monday night. But if not, then at least we'll have something to consider. Thank you very much.